Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. Welcome to this Lord's Day. We are, uh, it is truly one of the highlights of my week to be with you all. And as we prepare to begin, would you please pray with me one more time? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together to gather as a church. Lord, we pray that through your words you would shape us, convict us, and encourage us. And we pray that Christ would be exalted in our time today. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to ask you all a question. Where do you turn in life when you're faced with exceedingly bitter circumstances? Where do you turn? What comforts you in those moments when life seems to be against you? My grandmother seemed to ask this question a couple of years ago. You see, my grandmother was born on the little island of Jamaica, and she grew up in a loving household with great siblings, and when she was in her early 20s, she married a man named Frankie Lewis, who was the captain of the Jamaica national football team. They would go on to have four wonderful boys, and all things seemed to be going well. But then, things started changing. My grandparents were forced to come to the United States as they fled crime in Jamaica. Fast forward some years, and one of my grandmother's sons, my uncle, had been deported back to Jamaica. Another son was in prison. And this caused much pain and questions like, are we going to be able to keep our house and what will we do for work were very real and very in their face. And then to top it all off, one of her other th sons, my father, was diagnosed with cancer. And in the short time span of three weeks, would go on to be pronounced dead in the hospital. What happened? She asked one night, what did I do to deserve this? Where can I turn for comfort when it seems that the world is crashing in on me? Brothers and sisters, I think that our text for today, Ruth chapter 1, helps us to provide an answer to that question. So please, let's turn to Ruth chapter 1, which can be found on page 222 of your, the Blue Pew Bibles. And as you're turning there, we will pr prepare to uh, do this intermittent series on the book of Ruth, which we will see has a main theme of redemption. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Kilion. 
They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return to, with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite with her, with her, uh, with her who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Ruth 1 teaches us that God's providence is sweet in bitter circumstances. God's providence is sweet in our bitter circumstances. And we'll see this in three parts. First, verses 1 to 5, a bitter circumstance. A bitter circumstance. Second, a better choice in verses 6 to 18. A better choice. And third, in verses 19 to 22, a blessed comfort. A blessed comfort. A bitter circumstance, a better choice, and a blessed comfort. 
Now let's look at verse 1 again as we get into the first section, a bitter circumstance. Verse 1 begins, in the days when the judges ruled. The book of Ruth begins in some dark times. Verse 1 says that this book was written when the judges ruled. And one phrase you can see at the very last verse of the book of Judges, if you turn over just one page in your Bible at the very end of Judges, verse 25, Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is a summary statement of the book of Judges. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Everyone is doing as they pleased. And so there's all types of lawlessness around. The book of Judges follows a deadly cycle where the people fall under, into idolatry. And then as a result, they fall into foreign oppression, which then leads them to call out to Yahweh, Yahweh, give us help, help us, save us. And they repent from their sin and uh, Yahweh answers them. He delivers them. But by the end of the book of Judges, the people have taken out one step. They have stopped repenting. They are no longer grieved by their sin. And this results in all kinds of terrible destruction. In chapter 11 of Judges, a judge named Jephthah kills his own daughter as a sacrifice. And finally, in chapters 19 to 21 of Judges, there is the disgusting account of a brutal sexual assault and the murder of a concubine. And this murder leads to a civil war in Israel. The book of Judges is a dark time, and that is the setting that we immediately jump into in the book of Ruth. Continue reading with me in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. So in these dark days that the judges are ruling, there is a famine. And this famine should have been seen as a judgment from God. Deuteronomy chapter 28 tells us that if the people obey, they will get covenant blessings. But if the people disobey, they will have covenant cursings. These are signs of covenant cursings. There is no food in Bethlehem. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. And so the people's sin has caused even the house of bread to be breadless. There is no bread in the house of bread. And so this may not strike us like it should, but this would be equivalent to you going to a Chick-fil-A. And as you're preparing to place your order with their wonderful staff, they tell you, oh, by the way, we don't have any chicken. You would be very shocked, right? <laughs> this is Chick-fil-A, right? You should have chicken. Surely this would be some sort of divine judgment, not the holy chicken, not Chick-fil-A, right? And so though this is a silly example, Bethlehem certainly should have been seen as being under divine judgment because they were the breadless house of bread. Verse 2 of Ruth chapter 1 explains that the man who takes his family to Moab is named Elimelech. And Elimelech means, my God is king. My God is king. 
And so this man named My God is King goes away from the house of bread, Bethlehem, because of a famine to a land east of the Dead Sea in Moab. And it would have been an exceedingly strange choice for him to go to Moab. Moab, after all, was a land that was born in and always consistently seen in and known for its sin. Moab began out of the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughter. You can see that in Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38. And was known in the, in the day that, that Ruth is written for its seductive women, its wicked kings, and their oppression of the Israelites. So if you were a Jew at this time reading the book of Ruth, you would be thinking, they went to Moab? Of all places, Moab? Who on earth would do that? But dark days called for desperate measures. And so this man named My God is King goes with his wife named Naomi, which means pleasant, to this wicked land along with their two sons. And their two sons are named Malon and Kilion, which has something to the effect of the meaning of sickness and death. So even here, the unknown author is cluing us in to something bad is happening to this family. So they go to this unknown land with kids named something like COVID and cancer, and there they go and they remain there. They stay in this foreign land. And as they start to settle in, they try to rebuild their lives from the ground up, try to revive hope. And we have so many questions. Oh, sorry. But then before that, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Now, we, can, we do desire to ask, why did he die? But at this point, we, we need to focus in on what the author is and isn't giving us. This is divinely inspired God's word here. And so the details that are in here very much so matter. And so we trust God. as to We don't know why there was a famine in the land. There's a specific event that, that the author is referring to. Or why, how did Elimelech die? We don't know those things. But what we do know is that he dies. And so keep focusing on what the author is cluing us into. So look back at the text. Verse Three, but the Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And so the picture of the first five verses, a grieving Naomi tries to pull herself back together after she has lost her husband, and she has a ray of light shine through. Her two sons, they've taken wives, Orpah and Ruth. And even though it was forbidden in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, to intermarry with those from a different place, Naomi had probably had hope for grandbabies, her name to be passed on. But as each passing year goes by, and Orpah and Ruth remain not pregnant, Things keep getting worse and worse. The situation is not as she had hoped. And and then, after 10 years, her two sons, for some unknown reason, die. And she's left in Moab with her two daughters-in-law and nothing else in the land. In this context, Naomi was powerless 
because she didn't have the protection and provision of her husband. And then after her husband, she had hoped that her sons would grow up and take care of her. But then they too passed away. And she's now left in a foreign land alone with these Moabite widows. She seemingly has no hope. And all this is evident if you look at verse 5, as in verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman, the author doesn't even mention her name. It seems like everything has been taken from her. She has lost everything. These are certainly, this is certainly a bitter and terrible circumstance. But now let's look to verse 6. As we get a better, uh, we, we'll see our Next section, a better choice. We'll see a glimmer of hope. Verse 6 begins. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. After losing everything, Naomi hears of the Lord visiting his people, giving them food. And specifically, the, verse, the, the word for food in verse 6 is the Hebrew word lehem. As in, God put the lehem back in Bethlehem. There is now bread in the house of bread. And God has brought it back. And so Naomi leaves as she hopes that she can experience some, of this, some sort of this blessing as well. And just a point for us to reflect on, this text may not strike us as it should as, as we are modern readers. Because the Israelites knew that God was intimately involved in their lives. They knew that it was God who stocked the milk at the grocery store. They knew that it was God who has provided richly for us and providing for us Trader Joe's. And so they knew that when they went to the grocery store, they saw everything as from God. And so you too this week, when you go to the grocery store, when you eat a meal, see it as coming directly from God. Praise God for this meal. And so, so now Naomi knows that God was providing for his people. And so she and her two daughters-in-law set out for Bethlehem. But shortly after setting out, Naomi starts to tell Orpah and Ruth that they should stay in Moab. And they should try to find husbands there. She tells them to go back to their family's house. Go back to where you're from, because if you stick with me, you will have nothing. Verse 8 says, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. At this point, these women have been through a lot of life together. They have been through thick and thin. They have each watched as their husbands all passed away. They are sticking with each other. They love each other. And Ruth and Orpah are good women. They treated their husbands and the, their mother-in-law well, as Ru Ru Naomi even acknowledges. Verse 8, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. But still, Naomi urges them to go home. 
Because if, she stay, if they stay with her, they will be without protection and provision with the loss of their husbands. But still, Orpah and Ruth persist. They say in verse 10, no, we will go with you. And then in verses 11 to 13, Naomi gives them what she thought to be the ultimate checkmate. This makes sense. Just think about it. Verses 11 to 13, look at with me as I read. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should say I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi says, ladies, think about it. I have no sons for you. I can't get remarried because I'm too old. But even if I was to find some fool who was willing to marry me in my own age, I'm biologically unable to have children. And even if by some miracle of God I was to get pregnant on the first night, would you then therefore wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying to when you yourselves would probably be possibly too old to even have children? It doesn't make sense for them. It's a bad circumstance. And we may not understand this as it should have been understood to them. They are without protection and provision. They are widows. Probably at this time, this is not the most honorable time in the book of Israel, in the history of Israel. They are under judges, which means the oppressed people are already at a disadvantage. Those with husbands. Now, especially take those as widows. And then if you think about the situation of Orpah and Ruth, they're not only widows, they are foreigners. They're from Moab. Nobody likes them. And so she says, don't come back with me. It doesn't make sense for you. It's not a good decision. You're going to be mistreated and probably have no hope in your life. After this in verse 14, verse 14 reads, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi wishes that she could give Orpah and Ruth a better life, but she can't. And so after the realization of this, the women all collectively weep. They lift their voices loud and cry. And after this, at this point, Orpah kisses her goodbye. This makes sense. I love you, but I, and I don't want to leave you, but I feel like I have no choice. But Ruth does something different. Ruth clings to Naomi. And this word for cling is the same word that is used for, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, for a man holding fast to his wife. Ruth clings to Naomi. She is committed to Naomi. She holds fast and is loyal to Naomi. One lesson that we should learn as readers of God's word from Ruth is Ruth's perseverance in pursuing hard-to-love people. Ruth's perseverance in pursuing hard-to-love people. Have you ever been around a person 
who just seems to sap joy. Even being in their presence results in a morale drop. Do you know what type of person I'm talking about? They're the type of person that they have had so much pain in their life. So many things have seemingly went wrong for them that they are so hard to encourage. And they think that God is against them. People like Naomi. These people are hard to encourage. And what is really hard sometimes is that in situations like these, this type of person, because they've experienced so much pain, can even begin to push others away who are striving to help them. I've had too much pain. I, I just can't anymore. And this makes it extremely difficult for a person to come in and show love and to help this person. Again, I think Naomi was possibly something like this. But today, we need some more Ruths in our congregation. We need some people who are eager and willing to honor the church covenant that we as members of New Covenant Baptist Church have all signed. That even when times get hard, even when people seem to push you away when you're just trying to help them, you cling because of the covenant that you have made with one another. Because we are united, as verse 16 will say, by our God. His people are our people. And so as we think about this, ask yourself, am I a fair-weather friend? Am I a fair-weather friend? You may have heard the term used in sports, a fair-weather fan. This is a common saying in, in sports for, it refers to a fan who only pays attention to a sports team when they're doing very well. And so, for example, the 2019 Washington Nationals won the World Series in baseball. And so, I'm not taking shots at anybody, but maybe some of you were even fair-weather fans to the 2019 Washington Nationals, going to their games, saying, woohoo, go Nats, right? But then, if you're still following the Nats this year, and you're probably not going to be a fair-weather fan at this point. If you know anything of what's going on with the Nats this year, they had a, a very hard season, to put it, put it lightly. And so those fans have probably dropped away. Well, brothers and sisters, let's not be fair-weather friends. Let's emulate Ruth's example of commitment to each other, a type of commitment that sticks around despite what is sensible, a type of commitment that sticks around the hard-to-be-around people, a type of, let's be a type of friend who models the kindness shown to us in Christ. So ask yourself this question and process it with a trusted friend or godly spouse or godly mentor this weekend. Say, do I exemplify the Ruth type of friendship? Or am I a fair-weather friend? Honestly, as someone who wants to grow, help me see ways that I can grow. Now let's look back at verse 15 of Ruth chapter 1. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. 
For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth says, don't even think about asking me to leave. I'm going with you. Your people are my people and your God is my God. And I think that these breathtaking lines detail Ruth's conversion. There's a common word in the Hebrew of chapter one. It's the Hebrew word shuv. It means to return, to go back. And that theme is ever present in Ruth chapter one. And I think it's all pointing to these couple of verses when we see the Moabite Ruth cling and commit to Yahweh. Ruth becomes a follower of Yahweh. And if you're looking for extra evidence of this, Ruth invokes Yahweh's covenant name. May the Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps, Yahweh, the Lord's covenant name. She is entering into relationship with him. And by doing so, Ruth forsakes everything to follow Yahweh. Ruth was likely going to be a lifelong widow in a foreign land. She was going to know no one but this bitter old mother-in-law of hers. And she would have few legal rights. What a commitment. But this shows that Ruth believed that Naomi's God was trustworthy despite all that had happened. Ruth's faith, Ruth's faith was not shipwrecked by the previous tragedies. And Ruth's decision foreshadows what it takes to follow Jesus. That's why we read Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22 this afternoon. Because to follow Jesus, you must be willing to go wherever he wants you to go. To be a follower of Christ is to say Jesus is so worth following that when you get him, you're willing to lose everything. So an application question for you. Would you be willing to go to a foreign land and to forsake everything in order to be faithful to Christ? Why or why not? Again, I think this is one of the most miraculous conversions in the Old Testament. Ruth says, Naomi, I'm committed to you because I'm committed to your God. I will forsake everything to get him. And if you're here today and you would not call yourself a Christian, this is the same message that I would urge you to believe in today. I would urge you to come to Jesus today. Come to him your life may have been filled with bitter and terrible circumstances, but Jesus can provide redemption even to the worst of circumstances. To come to Jesus, you must know that you are a sinner, that you have chosen to go against God and his word, but that God in his grace sent Jesus to die on a cross to pay for the penalty of your sin. But after Jesus died, he did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead, thereby defeating death, and he is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so today, if you believe in him, today, if you trust in him and repent and turn away from your sin and turn towards him, you too can be a follower of Yahweh. I would urge you to do that today. And if you would like to think about that more and 
to process that with anyone, please find me or any of the other pastors at the doors as you leave, or find anyone else around you who is a member at New Covenant Baptist Church, and we would love to talk with you more about that. So Ruth makes this breathtaking statement that Yahweh is her God. And then Naomi sees that Ruth will not be denied. I'm coming with you. And so she is going to follow the Lord. But Naomi stays silent after this. And this is telling of her heart, telling of something that we're going to see in verses 19 to 22. She doesn't see the blessing that Ruth is to her. So let's look now at verses 19 to 22, a blessed covenant. Read with me verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi and Ruth make it to the town of Bethlehem, and the whole town is stirred because of them. This is kind of like if you grew up in a small town, and then you go home for the weekend. Maybe you're away for college, or you've gotten married, and you're coming back to see your parents. Or maybe you just have a house there, and you come back for the weekend, and everyone who is in town... Uh, and hasn't seen you, has, they, they don't know where you've been, they want to come see you. Hey, they're back. How's their marriage? I heard that they had a kid. I wonder how they're doing. How's their job? Asking all these questions. And these questions are in part due to just find out generally how you're doing, but then also so they can talk about you when you're gone and talk about you behind your back. And so they, they wonder how you are doing. It's not a, an angry or bad type of attention they're getting. People are just wondering, how is Naomi? How is she doing? So the word spreads around town. People are saying, is that Naomi? How's she been? But Naomi hears all this chatter and she says to them in verse 20, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which means pleasant, when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Naomi says, don't refer to me as pleasant. My life has been nothing but pleasant. My life is bitter. That word better describes my life. She says, I went away with everything and I've come back with nothing. And so we need to think through though, is this really true? Did Naomi really have nothing? No. You see, when she left Bethlehem, she said she was full. But she left Bethlehem, the house of bread, with nothing but her two husband, or sorry, her two boys and her husband. And she went to this godless city. And there, after that, she, she loses her, two, her sons and her husband, and she comes back, but she comes back with a daughter-in-law. Ruth, who has just pledged her life to her. Where you die, I will die. And she also has some financial possessions. If you look in Ruth chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, 
who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Naomi even has land. So she comes back to Yahweh's people with a daughter and some land. And although she's had a rough life, she doesn't have nothing. And so similarly for us today, when we go through bitter circumstances, we must be careful to not let our bitterness blind us. Don't let your bitterness blind you. How terrible it must have made Ruth feel for her to just say, where you die, I will die. I will go with you wherever. And as Naomi is coming back into town and possibly Ruth is even hiding behind her because she's nervous of these new people, who knows how well she even spoke this language. And Naomi says, I got nothing. Don't you just want to jump up for Ruth? Naomi, you have Ruth. Look. But she can't realize it because she's been blinded by bitterness. Today, when bitter things come our way, we must always strive to look for blessings that God has given us. Because there are probably some blessings around you that, may, that you may be taking for granted. How different would our attitudes be if instead of looking for the bitterness, we looked for blessings? Strive to cultivate a culture of looking for God's blessings even in the darkest of days. Also, we must think about Naomi's attitude toward God. Naomi's attitude toward God. She says that the Lord has testified against her. This seems to be some pretty strong language. And you may be here wondering if Naomi is thinking about God wrongly. Is Naomi thinking about God wrongly? And if you're thinking, about, if you're thinking that, I'd like for you to reflect deeply on the circumstances that Naomi is faced with. She has lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She has no hope for retirement or care in her old age. And she is deeply pained by the embarrassment that she feels for having no heir, no person to carry on her lineage. This is one of the worst situations imaginable for someone in Israel. She has had a hard life. And she's grieving and sad. And so the Bible is very clear at other points in the scriptures that we are, it is totally okay. It is good to, to voice your, your grievances and your sadnesses. Christianity is not a religion for only the constantly happy people. And really, is anyone really happy all the time? No. So the Bible is clear that it's good for us to, to voice our griefs and our sadnesses. And so Naomi is understandably grieving and it's not a bad thing. But where it turns out not good is when the pain and the loss starts to affect your view of God. When your view of God changes, then we've got a problem. She has forgotten the bigness and the benevolence of God. She's forgotten how big and how benevolent, how good our God is. That God, our God, is big. That he is transcendent over all things. That he's working all things together according to the counsel of his will. That he is a God who is providentially involved in every single detail of our lives. 
and that he often uses terrible circumstances to show us his tender care. That is our God. She has forgotten also that God is benevolent. She has forgotten the goodness of God. All that God does is good. He does not commit evil actions. And though he may permit them, God is all good. There are no evil intentions in God. And God has for, or Naomi has forgotten this. How many of us forget that God is big and that God is benevolent? He is good when we get into hard circumstances and bad situations. When we get the worst hand possible and when it seems that everyone and everything is going in the wrong direction, how many of us feel and forget that God is good and that God is benevolent? If that's you today, if you're feeling like Naomi, empty and without anything, I would remind you of our Lord. I would remind you that he's abounding in mercy, that he is working all things together for your good and for his glory. And that he is in total control of every event in our world. And if you're struggling to see that, remember that you have Jesus. God's proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves you and is all good and controls everything is his plan to give us Jesus. So remember him. So as we walk into suffering and, and hardship, we're often tempted to fall into two pitfalls. We think God isn't in control or that he doesn't care, but neither is true. And if you're here today and you feel right now presently bitter and hopeless, I would like to pose a question to you. What if God's timeline is different than yours? What if God's timeline is different than yours? Don Carson, in his book, How Long, O Lord, poses this question to us. He asks us to think about the possibility that our suffering is placed within the larger context of God saving souls or raising up the next generation of missionaries or some other purpose that is bigger and grander than we can ever think of or imagine right now. He writes, There comes a time when by reading the scriptures— it dawns on us that God frequently uses and blesses small acts of faithfulness in the context of deep misery to bring forth blessing we could not possibly have asked for, but would have been happy to suffer for. So suffering saint, how big is your God? What is he able to do with broken and hurting people? The answer is more than you could think or imagine. And so take heart that the Lord is at work. And this is exactly how Ruth chapter 1 ends. Let's read verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You see, it's no coincidence that the Lord brought Naomi and Ruth back at the beginning of barley harvest. Look at the beginning of the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. You have 
famine and going out, sojourning. And then chapter one ends with the return and the harvest. The, the unknown author of Ruth is bringing us in, giving us a hint that with God, a bitter and hopeless situation can turn out shockingly and surprisingly beautiful. There is hope. I hope that you have seen God's providence is sweet in bitter circumstances today. That God is a good God and that he is always in control. And though circumstances in our lives may be extremely bitter, we can rest in the character of our God, who is always good and always in control.